personally, for me, the benefit, the silver lining to this cloud, if there is one to be had, is that by doing and fulfilling my role successfully during this time, I have an opportunity to prove that remote work not only is possible, but produces a great result. You're listening to Chris Sage, my guest on today's episode of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. Chris is a creative professional who works in the visual effects industry in Los Angeles. Yes, that means he's worked on Hollywood movies and television commercials you've probably seen. Chris is also a friend of mine who I first connected with over one of my main hobbies, tea. In fact, the idea for this podcast episode came from a virtual tea session Chris and I recently did together. You see, now that we're all spending a lot more time in our homes due to the coronavirus, we're all coming up with creative ways to connect with our friends, families, and colleagues at a distance. While Chris and I met for tea over Zoom, I got to hear a bit about what it's been like for him to transition from working in an office every day to doing everything remotely. In this episode, Chris and I have a candid conversation about the challenges and the opportunities that remote work brings. We explore the pros and the cons of how his work, relationships, communication, and project management style have changed. So I invite you to grab yourself a cup of tea and join us in an exploration of these topics. If you're wondering how to adapt your life and business in the time of quarantine, this episode is for you. As always, I'm your host, Eric Turnison, and this is episode 146 of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Eric, nice to be here. You and I know each other through tea, actually. We've spent some time recently drinking tea together over Zoom conference. Yeah, that was kind of fun. It's something we've been getting used to as we sort of hit this stride of what's new normal. Exactly. And this is actually something that we're going to be talking in depth about during this call. And it actually is something that came up while we were drinking tea, because we were talking about the work that you do and how your work has been impacted based on the fact that everybody in your office has been sent home to work from home. So before we get into that in detail, can you just talk a little bit about your background and the kind of work that you do? Yeah, sure. I'm a creative professional. I work in the visual effects industry, basically uh, work more in the commercial space. I had spent some time working on feature films as well. But that particular industry is one where you wouldn't normally consider it to be, you know, very work from home or mobile because of the particular hardware requirements, the type of work we do we require a lot of processing power, a lot of distribution of processing power for network rendering. The kind of data sets we work with are quite large. So we were never really a work from home model, similar to anything like a company that works predominantly off laptops and, you know, mainly text-based we're very different than that. A lot of what we do is also very visual. That part of the process has been kind of interesting for me, trying to figure out like how do you work in this visual medium effectively where note-taking is more in sketch form or in commentary while reviewing something, an image or a movie with someone. That's kind of you know where I'm coming from as far as the type of industry that I'm in and you know how this current circumstance affects me. So prior to things happening, what was your kind of normal work situation like? Our industry is pretty facilities bound. So my workday usually consisted of going to an office, which is going to be generally in most scenarios, most of the businesses in our realm operate in what I would best describe as sort of a artist pit layout where you have producers that kind of manage the process and then a large 
work area with a variety of different people working on a variety of different tasks, but all related to the same project. So it makes more sense for us to all work in physical proximity to one another. So we have these big pits that we work in and teams kind of, you know, form in and out of that space in different ways. Sometimes they can be split across different parts of the facility. The space we're talking about is usually fairly large, several thousand square feet of just pit area. In that context, we are very much hands-on approaching an artist, talking directly to them face-to-face, reviewing what they have on their screen and that kind of thing. We do and have in the past, obviously, when you're working in a the commercial industry, you're going to have an end client to serve, which would be whoever's you know paying the bills for that particular commercial. And that end client, you know, you'll also have to either have them come into the building for reviews or manage those reviews remotely. And it's the same concerns, you know, you've got something visual to discuss. So sometimes, you know, that was mainly sort of sending videos back and forth, and then they review them on their end and then provide a list of detailed notes. You know, over the years, we've adopted different platforms that allow us to do collaborative markup on top of documents. Sometimes that's in the form of text. Sometimes we'll use something like a product called SyncSketch. SyncSketch, you know, allows you to load any particular media into a player and each person can take control of that media clip and draw on top of it, provide notes, provide text dictation, general stuff that we would accomplish in our normal physical interactive space. You know, we kind of in the past reserve to just how we collaborate with clients. We also occasionally work with vendors that are not in our facility or even in the United States in some cases. And so we employ the same sort of techniques to communicate with them and do reviews of work with them. But ultimately, you know, the end product, we're very much used to the final steps being a sit in the room type of thing where everybody's looking at things on one sort of screen that is color calibrated for the type of work that we're doing. And there's an agreement that that's the final product. So we're kind of also, you know, while some of this territory we've mapped out over the years in various collaborative relationships, this new phase that's coming up is definitely going to be uncharted territory for most businesses doing what in our industry is called finishing, which is that very much like hands-on first-person viewing of consistent image now has to happen remotely across multiple computers that all have different monitors and different color and all these kinds of things. So it's going to be quite fun figuring out how this works out. (laughs) As you're kind of describing that situation, an impression that I get is just there's a lot of maybe things that you're getting for free by being around each other, a lot of flow, a lot of just spontaneity that you probably now are realizing how those things were happening. Whereas before, when you were just in the space together, you naturally do it, don't think about it. And now you recognize, oh, wait, we have to find ways to replicate that in a distributed way where we're remote. Yeah, exactly. I think that's one of the challenges that most companies face is that human beings by nature, we're kind of designed to perform well in groups. It's something that we certainly take advantage of in our workflow or have been able to take advantage of in the past. Switching to full work from home has certainly been a lot of trial and error, trying to figure out how, you know, we move everyone from this 
very traditional, tactile, conversational methodology to something that perhaps has a bit of delay built in. We try as much as we can to stay connected to each other because at the end of the day, you know, there are components outside of our strict success at the actual job at hand that make for what we would consider our company, you know, our culture, our sociability, the events that we have as a group, the things that we do together definitely help to build that. And in most creative industries, that becomes very important because you do sort of over time come to the realization that the quality of your work is only as good as your sort of expansion of your world. And the more you can interact with people and get different viewpoints on things, and even if they're not work-related, it all kind of comes back together. And that's been a bit of a challenge for us, trying to figure out ways to replicate our company culture in a distant work situation or a remote work situation. You know, that actually reminds me of going back to us drinking tea. And, you know, I feel like there's maybe some skills that you've learned in the process of drinking tea that'll be helpful in this situation. Because ultimately, we're talking about here with regards to kind of the benefits you get from being in community with each other and working with each other and hanging out with each other. There's some sort of synergy that happens that then the relationships between people help to create a sense of belonging, community, which then influences the work. It raises this, I feel, beneficial introspection because then we start thinking about what is really at the heart of what we're getting out of being in community with each other. Is it really that we have to be in people's physical presence in order for this to happen? Or is there another way that we can accomplish that given that we're forced to be apart like this? Yeah, I think that's something that the world is going to have to really come to terms with. Like, What is the meaning of our civilized society and how do we participate in a way that is very different than what we're used to. Tea is a great example in that way, that that's something where we're very much in conversation with the people who are around us, not just literal conversation, but, you know, almost metaphysical conversation, energetic conversation with the people around us and trying to figure out how that translates in a meaningful way to the current circumstance. And, you know, hopefully this isn't as prolonged, but it is definitely going to have an impactful shift on how we view our relationships as a society. I know that for me, my tendency is, is a bit more introverted by nature. So this is a bit more comfortable for me to be in a more introspective personal space on a regular basis. But I'm also hyper aware that I have friends and family who really do best and thrive in a very connected sort of scenario and trying to figure out how to, you know, in the past, you could have basically said, I'm an introvert, you're an extrovert, we'll meet where we happen to intersect, but we won't push it beyond that. When you do have situations where now those two aren't naturally intersecting right now, you have to figure out a way to support each other and to maintain those relationships in this new format, even if it is for you know a, a short period of time in the grand scheme of things. There's other reasons why it could you know potentially be game changer overall in terms of how we sort of understand our, our relationships and how we sit with each other. But it's always something that you have to be mindful of when you approach your, your conversations now. 
Yeah, and you know, who knows? I mean, sure, the situation may change and everything may be ready to go back to normal, but based on the length of time we do this and what strategies we come up with, we may choose to keep some of the things that we've learned going past when things are supposedly going back to normal. Yeah, I think a lot of the things that, you know, there'll be some real value gained out of it. There are implications in terms of where we work and how we work that potentially could be impactful in the long term. I know that the company I work for, they have always had somewhat of an option on an occasional basis to work from home. They have provided that. But what it means for them in the long term is that, especially in like a, a market like Los Angeles, where cost of living is quite high, the cost of rent is quite high, just the physical resources required to put a person in a seat to do work are quite expensive. And looking at this scenario where, from a business perspective, they could reduce overhead, reduce costs by having more people work from home. And then from the personal perspective, how it impacts my life, is it something where perhaps for me, the industry that I'm in tends to be very localized in certain very metropolitan areas because that's where the work is done. The film industry, everybody associates that with Los Angeles or the bare minimum major cities. Major cities are also more expensive to live in and major cities also may not provide the lifestyle that I want or the lifestyle in which I thrive in. So personally for me, the benefit the silver lining to this cloud, if there is one to be had, is that by doing and fulfilling my role successfully during this time, I have an opportunity to prove that remote work not only is possible, but produces a great result. And that opens up a possibility for me personally of moving to wherever. You know, I may want to live in Washington State, I may want to live in Vancouver, I may want to live in Taiwan or wherever, trying to find a place that is inspiring to me, as opposed to being sort of bound or limited to the particular location where the business is. Right. And again, that's your personality type. I mean, you may thrive like that, and there are others who may actually want to be bound, and they wouldn't actually call it bound, right? Because that's terminology. I'm an introvert too, so I completely resonate with what you're saying. But maybe for an extrovert, it feels expansive to be like their travel, like interactions with different people is like traveling and living in different locations to them, maybe. And they experience their sense of fulfillment from that. And so your position in the company, are you in a role of having to assess the challenges and come up with creative solutions for those challenges with regards to the remote situation at this point? Yeah, I would say that in general, you know, I'm part of what I would consider or what the company considers to be a leadership team. And our hierarchy is relatively flat compared to most companies. I mean, obviously, like we're in a creative space. Our industry is in a, you know, sort of creative sector of the economy where hierarchies are a little bit more flexible than others. We're kind of at this point, which is really inspiring in in our case, that they look at it as all hands on deck. There's nobody's ideas that are valued more so than another person. So a lot of us are all kind of contributing to actively, in real time, figure out how to resolve the issues that come up with this new way of working. But in general, there's definitely, I have a great opportunity in how I present this conversation at this time 
to sway the larger flow of the company. I mean, we've had offices in Los Angeles as well as New York for some time. And so we've had this bi-coastal opportunity that maybe took hold a little bit here and there, wasn't always successful. But now we're all sort of pushed into that mode of being problem solvers and being actively involved in the decision-making that's happening. You know, I'm fortunate in that way. I know people that are working at other companies that are much larger in scope, you know, international companies, let's say, with hundreds of thousands of employees, their approach, and they're kind of going through a situation where they are also doing creative work, but they're forced to do it in a certain way. And that way it doesn't always work versus our situation where we're a bit more nimble. You know, if somebody finds an idea that works, you can present it and the company will invest time in exploring it kind of thing. When it was early days in this, and it was basically like very close to the time where the leadership decided, okay, we've got to send everybody home. What were some of the first few challenges that were faced and needed to be, and that you actually found solutions for early on? Our type of work is very much, like I mentioned before, is very much related to the hardware that we work on. One of the big question marks when we decided to send everyone home is, you know, how is all of this hardware going to hold up on Monday morning? And so there was a big unknown in that regard. We were talking about a relatively large scale impact on our network infrastructure. You know, when you've got 150, 200 people all now pulling through the same pipeline in our internet connection, that was a big unknown. Fortunately, we already had some built-in redundancy because we do have a shared platform across multiple locations across the United States. We had some redundancy in that network bandwidth, so we were able to sort of shuffle that around a bit. That's obviously like a primary concern for most people is what kind of data are we talking about? What kind of physical need are we talking about? The other one, which was a little bit less tangible, in some ways a larger unknown, was how do we communicate effectively? Since we do often work with clients who are all over the world, we already had a number of teleconferencing or video conference solutions in place. We have done GoToMeeting and other virtual meeting platforms. You know, currently we're sort of stabilized on Zoom for our corporate communication and also our interaction with clients. So that was there. So the ability to essentially hop on a call was something that we were able to scale up successfully. That in some ways that didn't have much to do with us, just a testament to the robustness of the platform itself. But the other side of that is not just the actual ability to communicate, is how do we problem solve in the same way when we can't be near each other? How do you improve your communication skills? How are you going to have to finesse your language, both written and spoken, to be clearer in your communications? Because that's going to be crucial going forward. And that's kind of, you know, the one area that's a bit more esoteric. And so, you know, we try to provide as much encouragement and coaching for each other in that regard, like encouraging people who may be very used to going over to someone's desk all the time, giving them techniques to really finesse their verbal communication in a way that it's more effective. Those are some of the challenges that we we didn't really know were going to be there because we've never had to sort of be confined to very limited interaction for our communications. But we're, we're obviously like, I wouldn't say at 
resolved. You know, we don't have all the answers. We haven't figured out everything at this point, but it's been a very interesting challenge for us. And I think everybody to really sort of get back to this idea that our language and the words that we use do matter quite a bit and how that, you know, that translates into effective work-related communication as well as in our personal lives. Not only the language and the words we choose, but something that you touched on too is when we choose to communicate. When is it appropriate? When is it about actually I need to communicate with somebody or is it maybe that I'm just procrastinating or and I'm just maybe I can't sit with the fact that I don't have anything to do, et cetera. You know, because I know in offices, there's obviously the benefits of being around people. You can jump over to somebody and it can be an appropriate situation and you can really have this synergistic conversation where some great stuff comes out, but you also have the reverse of that where people are just mingling with each other and it's actually not productive. And maybe it would be better if they weren't doing that at that time. So it's this balance. So I think that that's also a really important thing that's happening is people have to consider more. Is this the right time? Do I actually need to ask something? Do I actually need to communicate this? And what is the most effective way that I can communicate it? Yeah, it's kind of everybody's sort of getting a bit of a crash course in mindfulness in a way. Exactly. Really sort of being more considerate with the language that you use and the words that you use and the timing of those words, especially when you look at, there are also in the technology of it all, there are other sort of linear collaborative platforms like something like Basecamp or Slack, where you have these very long threads of communication. It's funny to see how much when you have this open platform of something that is is essentially linear and you're trying to get an idea across that needs to be communicated in segments and then you have people shooting their text in between you <laughs> on each reply that you do, how that affects the communication. And, and some of that is like this idea that you're talking to someone in real time. And so them interjecting in that way is probably something that's recoverable fairly easily from a conversational perspective. But when you're trying to relay a succinct set of ideas that need to kind of flow in a certain order, and you have people sort of interjecting in that when it's just text is a whole other thing. And so part of it is, is like you said, it's learning when you need to speak and when you need to listen and being aware of the subtle difference of what that means. And also choosing, you know, recognizing there are some pitfalls with a tool and choosing the right tool for the right type of situation. So for that type of situation, maybe it may lead to thinking, okay, if I need to communicate something succinctly text-based, maybe Slack isn't the best tool to use. Because obviously people, yes, they can become more mindful, but if something can go wrong, it will go wrong, basically. So the more that you can choose your tools to effectively support what you're trying to do, the better. There's also another aspect of that as well, because there are certain things that are better communicated through email, certain things that are better communicated through sort of linear chat platform, certain things are better communicated through video or audio conversation. The other aspect of all that is that right now, because a lot of this is going to be new for most people, one of the first things that you'll experience is communication overload you'll hit a point where somebody's like, I want to use Slack for this. And the other person's, I think we should use Basecamp. And then some people are communicating through text on your phone. Some people are communicating through Zoom chat. Some people are communicating through Google chat. 
And so now all of a sudden, the alert box on your screen and on your phone is just pinging like crazy. And there's an impact to that as well. And so there's that additional level of trying to steer different types of conversations to different platforms that people can have a comfort level around and sort of standardize on those. That's been another side of that equation as well. Where are you right now with this conundrum? Do you have any things you've implemented that have helped? Do you have any potential ideas for solutions? For us, there are challenges that we still face that are particular to our industry, like one of which is the visual nature of it and the larger data sets. We are kind of working through some technology to be able to allow us to quickly migrate some of that data and information locally to our machines. Because right now, basically, everybody in our office is logging into the same machine they had at their workstation at the facility and controlling that machine remotely through VPN and remote Mm -hmm. desktop. Or in some cases, there's another platform called Teradici, which is another sort of distributed networkable workstation type scenario. But that's the main way we're doing things. But as you know, we run into those problems, we're seeing certain kinds of data are best viewed locally. And so we're figuring out ways to work with that, that kind of data on a local machine, but also integrate it back into our larger scale system. Our industry is somewhat unique in that way. We have you know, what we would call a pipeline, which is quite complex and there's a lot of moving parts. And it's very resilient as long as everything fits into the pipe. And so once things start going out of the pipe, they get difficult to track and difficult to work with. And so you know, that's one of the things that most companies are going to face is how do you, if everybody's working from home and not working off the server, let's say, how do you bring that information back into the fold so that everyone can access it? You know, other things that we've kind of been working towards is creating more or less an official set of policies and positions that are related to certain kinds of software, like what software we're using for our primary communication, what software we're using for our telecommunication. Those kinds of things have been pretty helpful, especially in the early days where everybody's like, I want to use Twitch and I want to use this. And and you have to kind of, you know, kind of steer everybody back in a common direction because it's very clear early on. We we also work, we we have directors that are part of the company, which is a bit non-traditional for this type of workflow. And as with any company where you have key individuals, they become incredibly busy. And when you start exacerbating their already stressed timelines with a barrage of communication from all these different sources, things get lost quickly. And so we've had to adapt to that. One of the biggest things I think we've had to kind of figure out how to do as a company is really an exercise in patience. How do we help each other become more patient with our workflow and with our communication because things are not going to go the same way as we're used to for some time? And you know, how do you approach your communications with patience? For me, and one of the things I try to communicate to other people and how I I deal with my colleagues is approaching it from the standpoint of we're all trying to do the best job we can. And if there is a communication bottleneck that becomes frustrating, it's not because the other person on the other side is trying to frustrate you. That goes back to some techniques of mindfulness and meditation of dealing with your ego and how much you can be stressed out or aggravated by something that is out of your control and something that is not actually happening. 
you're experiencing the frustration as a function of your mind understanding frustration, but it's not really, you know, something that's there. It's how do you figure out how to move people in that direction where they don't become frustrated with each other too quickly and have patience to understand each other's situation. You know, we have some people who are zero risk individuals who are just doing the best they can in a space that they're not comfortable with because they need their social time. And then we have people who have, you know, friends and family who may be at risk and have those additional emotional stresses of both the isolation and also concern for a loved one. We have people whose spouses or significant others have been let go of their jobs because of this situation. All that impacts how we tend to deal with each other in our workspace. And so trying to find gentle ways to encourage people to just tap the brakes for a sec, let the information absorb. If you've got to move to a different chat thread for a second just to reset, then do that. Don't feel like everything needs to happen in real time, but do your best to understand what the other person's going through. And it's particularly, for in my case, I'm currently working with some vendors who are in Argentina and their situation is quite different. They were very much unprepared for a work from home scenario. So they are struggling to figure out and still struggling how to maintain their efficiency level and maintain their output. And, you know, they miss deadlines, they miss milestones. And part of, you know, my natural instinct is to go, you know, why is this happening? I need to be stern with you versus trying to be a little bit more understanding that, you know, they're struggling with their own concerns. This is a difficult time for everybody. How do I modulate my response in a way that ultimately is going to result in more successful communication? Because no one communicates well when they feel like they're being attacked or they feel like they're being scrutinized or they feel like they're being under you know, severe criticism. Some of that stuff is not really solvable by technology. And so we're kind of working through ways to deal with that as we go. I love that that's happening. It's a beautiful thing because it's basically bringing humanity back into work life where we spend a lot of our time. And I mean, I remember I lived in LA for four years and I was a consultant. I worked at Sony Pictures. And I remember I sat close to one of the head executive's office and she's a woman and she was pregnant and she was going to give birth. And the sense that I got was she was like, basically the way that she was communicating to her team was like, hey, I'm just going to go have this baby. I'll be right back. Kind of like that. It's like, I'll just go take care of this little minor thing, and but I'll be right back to work. And it kind of like really struck me as this off balance thing. And I could appreciate her position. I mean, I felt like she was fully in it. Like she didn't have any conundrum about it because she was just so steeped and connected to her work. But it's like, there isn't, really a lot of room in our corporate environments for, hey, people need time for themselves. Like They need personal time because we're always about deadlines. We have very strict things that come down from hierarchies. Starts with the client. We promise something. The managers and the executives impress this, have timelines, and then that gets impressed upon the workers. And there's really no allowance for any wiggle room, especially in the entertainment industry. And so I love that this situation is kind of like putting that focus on like, look, we are human, like we're not machines and <laughs> allowing for it. Like, yeah, the deadlines may slip, we'll do our best, but they might slip. So I'm really encouraged that people are 
having to face this and work through it. Right. I mean, there's definitely an opportunity for a lot of growth as a result, both professionally and personally. I think the more people engage in this sort of new normal, the more I think we'll have opportunities to grow as a society. If it's Even if it's just learning how to be a bit more understanding and communicate better with each other. And I imagine with you, because you have had practice, you have a mindfulness practice. I mean, you, you drink tea, that's a meditative practice. So I wonder, from your perspective, drawing on that particular part of your experience, how is that assisting you? How are you dealing with the stresses that come up for you personally? And when people come to you, friends, family, coworkers who are dealing with situations where they may not be as well equipped, how are you handling those interactions? Well, I mean, each one is unique. And I think that the biggest part of it is trying to be patient. I mean, I know that, you know, in addition to the issues related to trying to work from home or trying to figure out how to be successful at working from home, a lot of us are, you know, I'm married and now finding myself in a position where I share my workspace with my wife because she's always worked from home and worked remote. And so it's also, you know, every a lot of people are facing a similar challenge, whether it's a wife, a girlfriend, a significant other, children. That impacts quite a bit when you're home with your kids all day. It's a totally different dynamic when you, as their parent, are seen as 100% accessible. Trying to figure out how to sort of be as patient as you can with the various scenarios. I think that's one thing that I've learned from my practice with tea and my other meditation practices. I've never been a real serious sort of, you know, Vipassana goer or commitment to meditation. It's more as it comes. But tea has really been my form of meditation for some time. And I think the one thing that I've picked up from that practice that I apply to most things in my life is having patience for what comes. By nature, I've always been a perfectionist because I work in visual arts and I consider myself to be a creative worker. My persona, my life persona, my work persona has very much been defined by this very demanding sense of quality. What do I demand of myself? What do I present to others? Is it good enough quality to present to others. And I think one of the things that, you know, I've learned through my tea practice is a bit of softening in that regard and learning how we all come to this moment as we are. And my interpretation of what meets a certain standard for perfection is not necessarily a universal one. And there's a beauty in coming to terms with this perfection doesn't, or this level of perfection doesn't conform with my expectations. And so trying to figure out and learning from that experience of not having your expectations met, but still looking for the beauty in that experience is one I think has been really important for me. My wife also brews tea as well. And over the years, I've met many people who brew tea and make tea and and all of them you know, as a practice, there's no one way to do it. And I think the big point of the practice is you're meeting the experience at the moment that it's being presented. You're there for that moment, not for what you think that moment should be or what that outcome should be, but you're there to experience that. 
And once you let go of those expectations and those other things that is mental constructs of how something should go, you open yourself to a whole realm of subtleties and finesse of refinement that you didn't even know existed because you were applying a filter on top of it. And so I think that's, you know, for me, that's what I bring to my work life the most is that constant effort to try and look at things objectively and to not constantly be inserting my sense of perfection. Now, at the end of the day, in my industry, you know, there is a final say as to what is correct. That's just how the workflow happens. There is one person or group of people who are determinate as to whether this looks good or it doesn't. So it's also, for me, a practice of accepting that outcome and accepting the idea that these people, they have their own ideas of what this should look like. And my role here is to be of service. It's to help them achieve that goal. It's not to be bent out of shape because what they want doesn't match what I thought it should be. Right. And those two things are also present in the tea practice. I mean, it is, yes, about acceptance, but also there is a range of a right way to brew tea in terms of how it tastes. And it is about service. That's one of the beautiful things about the whole practice is that all of those things are present and in kind of a somewhat controlled environment where you can do it. Yeah. I mean, one of the beautiful things in my personal journey being a tea person is how much I've been pleasantly surprised when going to sit down with someone to drink tea and they're using like the wrong kind of water or they're using this type of vessel to make the tea. My expectations aren't that high. And then being absolutely floored by the result, both energetically as well as like from a connoisseur's perspective with things like taste and aroma and those kinds of experiences. That's been the most important takeaways. I've had the most amazing tea brewed in the finest teaware that you can imagine from Ming Dynasty, Song Dynasty, all these beautiful antiques. And then I've also mm-hmm. had tea brewed in a glass cup, which was equally amazing. And it's a testament to how much these overall expectations make up a filter through which we view the world. And if we can soften those a bit and be comfortable with things that don't meet our expectations, we really have an opportunity to experience something wonderful. Yeah, and I think for me, one of the biggest lessons I've learned is having the expectations actually is the same as a lack of presence. You expect to repeat something you've already experienced before, and therefore your mind is naturally looking for it. And if what's happening doesn't match what you're looking for, then you kind of close down in a way to what's actually happening. And I think from experiencing tea, one thing that's readily available to experience is that, like you said, you could be drinking a certain teas from the most beautiful vessels, or you could be drinking tea out of like styrofoam cups. You can have the experience that, wow, like no matter which one, there's a potent aspect to this experience which then allows some internal conditioning to relax. Where, and that conditioning is that idea of perfection where, oh, I need to in some way control my environment in order to feel the thing that I'm wanting to feel. You come to more of a place where, oh, I just need to be present and surrender and the experience will happen on its own. It's not something for me to control. And that internal relaxing, that acceptance of what is, 
then helps us to be people that can accept where everybody else is at and not be critical of them. And then when we're not critical of other people, we can just allow things to, we give space to uh, allow things to happen naturally. And I think that that space is really important. I mean, I can't really count the number of times where I've been in a situation where I've had a certain expectation. I've tried to force that expectation on something only to be disappointed myself with the outcome. I also have had many, many times in my life where by getting out of the way of that expectation, something that I was convinced would never work turned out to work beautifully and ended up being a better result than if we would have gone down my path. And so I think, you know, it's one of those things where you, by releasing some of that control over the situation, you open yourself up to a wider array of possibilities. Whereas if you approach everything from the standpoint of, I see the road ahead and this is the turn we want to take and this is how we want to go and how fast we want to get there, you may be closing yourself off to avenues that could have gotten you there faster or taken you there in a more elegant way or produced a more beautiful result. And I think adopting that mindset in your work allows you to treat the people you work with with more agency. And what I found over the years is that people who feel like they have a real creative vested interest in the outcome will perform way better than people who are just doing what you're telling them to do. And so it's important to, as a leader of a team, obviously, I have to be mindful of the direction that the client wants, the time frame we have to do something, whether we can explore alternatives within that framework successfully. And I do have to impose some overall, you know, sort of controls on the process. I always find I get better results when the people who I'm leading feel that they have the freedom to create. And that freedom is a direct result of the letting go of expectations as to how something should happen. So how do you bring that level of fluidity to, say, a briefing with your team? You have a project, you are going to explain to them what you need from them. What are some techniques that you're using in terms of the words you use and how you communicate what you want to get out of them? I think from my perspective, one of the most important things is, is starting with a clear framework. What's the objective? What are the timelines? What are the milestones within that timeline? Those are the kinds of basics that I feel having that in place to begin with gives you more flexibility to operate on top of. I've always been a person that felt that by having some structure in place that sort of takes away certain aspects of what do I have to call this thing? What do I have to name this thing? Where do I have to put it? Creating a framework like that as a base layer allows you to function more fluidly on top of that. And I think that for me is, is step one, really sitting down and presenting the expectations and the milestones. The other part of it is trying to maintain fluidity. One of the challenges we face often is I work in an industry where there are a myriad of different artists who have different skill sets and different aesthetics. And so given that there's millions of different options there, the likelihood of you finding someone who may not be a perfect fit is high. It happens. 
And it's no fault of theirs. It's just they are of a different skill set, a different level in their career, or perhaps a different aesthetic to achieve what you want them to do. And so by having a base framework, you have the ability to sort of shift things around and move things. And the constant evaluation of where things are, even before hitting milestones, is really important. Again, it's never, it's never a situation where you're trying to impose a particular outcome outside of that macro level stuff of you know when it delivers and you know what the end aesthetic should be to a degree. It's also trying to interpret an aesthetic that's not necessarily coming from yourself. There's an end goal there that is sometimes even for the person who you're producing it from might be somewhat of an enigma. And it's sort of finding ways to figure out how to flesh out what that look is with them as quickly as possible. And so a lot of it is steering the workflow into ways that you get the maximum number of iterations. Because iterations, quick iterations, really tend to be the way that we get to our established aesthetic quicker. That kind of flexibility is really where I think for me, that's how I try to look at projects is, you know, how do I get enough examples in front of the right people to make the right choices? And then after that, it has to do with sort of managing how this all comes together in the different components, especially when you have companies that are in other countries. In my case, I'm fortunate enough to work for an enterprise that's large enough to have additional resources technically that I can draw upon. So if somebody really feels like they need to use this piece of software to do this particular type of creative work because they are really good at that and not the one that we have, I can figure out a way to make that happen. Or if someone is providing us data that is in a certain format, I can lean on my pipeline department to integrate that into our workflow. So in that that sense, I'm pretty fortunate. But I think in general, it comes back to this idea of having a very clear framework for people to work on top of, and then also allowing yourself the flexibility to sort of navigate the curveballs as they come. Since you're in the unique position where you're also working with communication internally, but I imagine you're also dealing with clients, and I think that this might also be a common thing that people are experiencing, especially in the entertainment industry, is I don't know how much production work you do, but you do post-production, of course, but a lot of production isn't happening right now in LA just because everything's shut down. How do you deal with managing client expectations and communication in the events where either your timelines are going to be, because of circumstances, extremely altered, or maybe even can't complete it because you don't have the material coming in that you need to work with? Right. PSYOP, this is a company that I work for, and they have both production and post-production. So we are full spectrum service. And so we do have that production component, which has completely shut down at this point. And so there were projects that we had that ultimately had to get canceled because they were too much live action to really shift gears. We've had other projects that were already booked that shift gears to being fully post-production oriented, whether, whether that's motion graphics or whether that's full character animation, other types of animation that kind of thing. And what we've also seen, which is definitely you know one of those silver lining things, is we've seen brands that normally would be operating solely in the production space or live action 
space calling us and asking us how can we achieve the same thing with animated characters. On the one hand, we've lost a bit of business, and that business will hopefully pick up providing the companies that are commissioning these commercials are still in business, hopefully. We've had some that just, you know, the company is no longer in a position to be doing this type of work. But we've also been fortunate to have some additional windfalls in other areas. And so, you know, it's been a challenge, but a lot of companies are are shifting, at least for the foreseeable future, to providing some content as fully post-production oriented content. It's interesting to get into some of those workflows. I haven't started any of those projects just yet, but I have one coming up where we're going to have a client who's definitely very comfortable in the live action traditional production world that we're now going to have to transition them as elegantly as possible to dealing with things that take longer for some things and take less time for others. And also require more imagination, right? Because you're going to have to show them drafts. And be like, this doesn't look at like anything that I want. You're like, well, you know, it's a draft. We need to wireframe it first. <laughs> That's been the case for some time now. We've been around for quite a while. And so dealing with clients and trying to navigate expectations, I've dealt with clients that have never done post-production before. And I've dealt with clients with all they've ever done is post-production. And so there's a big disparity between the two. And you just, you kind of try and flag it early on as much as possible. And sometimes you need to invest a little bit more on the front end with a bit more on the design side, you know, having people who can really beautifully sketch out ideas so that people can grasp them as opposed to showing them like stick figure presentations, things like that. Or, you know, some clients don't understand wireframes and that's just the way it is. And you have to find ways to guide them through this path because it's an unknown for them. They're not comfortable. The opportunity there is you're helping someone achieve something. You can be of service to that vision if you adopt a strategy of maybe needing to provide them with a little bit more guidance than you normally would. The upside is, is that once clients go this particular route, you know, there's always an initial upfront cost in terms of building assets, building out an infrastructure and a platform to present the material. The next time they need it, they don't have to pay for that over again. You know what I mean? It's like if you're working in a traditional you know, live action production, you build a set for one production. Usually when that production's over, that set's torn down. And so next time you do a production, you probably have to rebuild that set or a similar set over again from scratch. And that's just the way it goes. And it's an accepted part of the process. Whereas our process is a little different. You know, we can keep these assets around because they're digital. We keep our sets, we keep our characters. You know, we don't have to worry about actor availability, any of those things. And so, you know, the opportunity there is that by these circumstances pushing some of these projects to be more fully post-production oriented or animation oriented, there's opportunity for them to, if they're successful, to look at this in the future and go, oh, this is easier and quicker or less expensive path to get the same result. And it's actually quite fun. We enjoy this. We enjoy doing these kinds of projects. In our profession, I think the big part of it is, is, you know, we're, we're in kind of the making people happy business. You know, we want to make sure what we provide makes the clients happy. But as an animation focused company, we also are producing content that is shared a lot on YouTube and social media platforms. And so ultimately it's like, is what we're doing making people happy as well out in the public? So, you know, it's a lot of that making people happy business. And also something I'm hearing underlying everything you're saying that I think is a generally important lesson for people at this time is 
take a time to listen and also be willing to change direction. Maybe you've been doing something in your company that's one thing and you're hearing, oh, there's all this opportunity in this space. Well, now's the time to be nimble. Now's the time to pivot if you can. Listen to those new opportunities because like essentially in your situation, what was coming up to mind, I have a couple of friends who are voice actors and I'm like, wow, this must be an actually great time for them because all these switches happening. Not to mention, I also thought about theatrical releases. I've been seeing ads on Amazon, basically like movies from Disney and other studios that may have been slated for theatrical release. Now they're finding, okay, how do we do our releases and profit from them in a digital way without relying on people coming to the box office? This time is all about how do we adapt? How do we adjust? Yeah, I think that's, you know, if if there was any lesson that I think applies to the populace at large, it's how do you build your resilience? How do you, you know, build your ability to, you know, maneuver and adapt to changing circumstances? I think a lot of us have been very comfortable in the status quo and businesses are no exception. It's all about maintaining that flexibility and an open mind to what the future presents. And ultimately, I think that that as business owners, we have a certain responsibility here to do that because your company's ability to make those switches means that you, for the people who have lost their jobs, maybe you're opening up new jobs, which then those people are making money. It's putting the money back into the economy. You're hiring more animators. You're hiring voice actors. So where jobs may have been lost, now they're gained. And now the more that the economy is stimulated, now those people can then maybe find ways to distribute that money to others. So I think as business owners, we have a certain role to play where we're having resources come to us. How do we get that distributed back into the economy through the people that we hire and therefore from them to the close to home resources that they're supporting? Another part of the equation is how do we as a company navigate some of those more delicate issues where there are positions that are obsolete at the moment. How do we continue to support those people and encourage them or help them make transitions into other areas where they can, you know, continue to be of value, even though their particular business segment may, you know, not be functioning at the moment. And I think a lot of people are are struggling with that right now. And I think I feel pretty fortunate that, you know, I work for a company that has a general commitment to trying as many options as possible before letting people go. To say that we're all roses and honey from this experience is not correct. I think as a business, they're struggling as well, trying to figure out you know, how to offset the lost work. Is the new work going to come in quick enough? And is it something that we can execute on a timeline that the client wants? There's still a, lot, a bit of unknowns, but working for business and trying to support businesses that really have a commitment to helping people through this transition as best they can. It's interesting in the context of, you know, what the future holds for civilized society with, you know, various forms of automation and those kinds of things continuing to, you know, advance. What does work look like in 25 years? You know, we're kind of getting a preview of some of that stuff now. You're starting to see, oh, well, you know, these were essential things and now they're no longer essential. What do we do with our members of our society that are kind of the collateral of this? How do we help them? And the question is, it's just as much a question for us as it is for them. It's more of a vision that we're connected. I forget where I heard this, but somebody used the metaphor of like, 
you live in a an apartment building and somebody's apartment is burning on the first floor and you live on the 12th floor, well, you could say, oh, well, it's not my apartment. But really, you know, if theirs burns down, you're next. It's only a matter of time. And I think that there's a really big sense of understanding here. It's like, yeah, you may not be affected or you may be affected to one degree or more or less than somebody else. But if a large portion of people in our society are not able to live fulfilling lives, ultimately that bubbles up. I think that part of what this is highlighting is just this more community-mindedness and not egocentricity or I-ness, focus on the I and what's good for me. The resources are there. There's enough resources for everybody. But the thing is, there's a lot of stagnant pools of resources with people who are hoarding and who have been hoarding even before this, you know, in one form or another, that they're content to do so. I mean, technically at a deeper level, they're really not content, which is why they're hoarding. But that's another conversation. You know, it's more about how still waters in the jungle is what develops disease. The same with resources from my perspective. If you're holding resources and it's not flowing, it's going to develop some sort of energetic stagnation that will affect your life. Right. The fallout from this could go many ways. And I think one of the things that we'll, we'll see as a result of that is a, a more deeper understanding of what it means to be a member of a society. I mean, even if it comes down to just the act of, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to be confined to my house. I don't want to be in this situation, but I'm doing it not because I'm necessarily concerned for my own health. I'm concerned for the health of the people that I don't even know. And there is the tremendous potential for that to filter out as a general way of being. Hopefully it does in a deeper sense that, you know, these people who are or have been historically more concerned about their own well-being and amassing wealth for themselves start to really see, oh, okay, this doesn't make sense because doesn't matter how much I have or how much I want to get if all these other people who I'm over the years have been oppressing or not necessarily oppressing, but considering as unessential, I see what happens when they all of a sudden disappear. <laughs> you <Right>. know, <laughs> I, I, I see what happens to my empire once people stop buying things. And I don't even think that a lot of these people are intentionally doing it. I just think that part of the challenge in our world is lack of visibility. Things are so distributed. We order food, we get things delivered. We hadn't considered the delivery man, we're considering the delivery man now. Just so much of our world just is automated in a sense, even though it's automated with humans. We don't have that connection of a, a true appreciation, how things actually arrive that we need, where the food comes from, who's growing that food, how did it get to the store, who's working at the store, you know, all these things. Yeah, I mean, it brings things into sharp perspective. I think at the end of the day, we'll hopefully be able to look back on this time and learn as much as we can from the experience and take what we can and move forward in a more charitable way and a, a way that really is patient with each other and mm -hmm. a little bit softer. And so the outcome, we don't know yet, but whatever that outcome is, I think if we learn from it, those lessons will come out as a better society afterwards. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And speaking for myself, I'm not going back. <laughs> you know, when all this is quote unquote over, I'm not returning to the way things were before in a full sense. You know, I'm all for the positive things that are happening in this scenario. And I fully intend that I want to keep learning these lessons and 
keeping mindful, increased connectivity, individual relationships, local community support, you know, stuff like that. For myself, I think the opportunity of really taking a moment to consider, you know, what my quality of life is, how that relates to work, how that relates to my location in the world, whether there's a place that is more inspiring for me. You know, I think if I do my job right, then I'm only opening up those opportunities for myself in the future. Cool. Well, this has been a great conversation with you. I I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk about these things. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Do you have a personal website or some place that you would be open to having people learn more about you if they wanted to? You're more than welcome to give out the Instagram feed because that's kind of like collaborative between Mickey and I. That's more or less what we would go by. And what's the Instagram feed? Sage Love on Instagram. Cool. So yeah, if people are interested in learning more about Chris specifically in terms of some of the stuff we've talked about with tea and mindfulness, that's the kind of stuff that goes on on Sage Love. And I think often you refer people to different tea sources and different things in the tea world and just generally good stuff. So yeah, people can follow you there. Well, again, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for listening to this entire episode of the Subscription Entrepreneur Podcast. I'd like to extend my sincere thanks to Chris for coming on the show and getting real about how the coronavirus has impacted his life and work. I hope you enjoyed and benefited from our conversation. To see the show notes and get a downloadable transcript of today's episode, head on over to subscriptionentrepreneur.com slash 146. And if you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. We have a growing library of engaging episodes just like this one and many more to come. Thanks for being here and we'll see you next time.